Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And this is Disorder, a podcast where we examine a pressing global issue like climate change, tax havens, or war in the Middle East, discussing how all these issues have come to be part and parcel of our era of global disorder and where we finish by proposing solutions to restore effective global governance that could ultimately, maybe, just maybe, help us find the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest semblance of order. This episode is going to be a difficult one. We are coming back to talk again about the situation between Israel and Gaza. I don't think anyone can fail to be moved by the shocking images we're seeing coming out of the appalling, atrocious terrorist attacks by Hamas and the suffering of the Palestinians who are also victims of what Hamas has precipitated. We're going to be talking in this episode about two particular themes. One is why this is such a diplomatic minefield, how difficult it is to find the right words to talk about this without upsetting either side or without triggering a tsunami of accusations that you're justifying terrorism or you're justifying collective punishment or you're defending Hamas or that you're blaming the Israelis. It's such a difficult topic that even the UN Secretary General got into hot water recently for how he framed the discussion at the UN Security Council. In the second part of the episode, we're going to try and move beyond the finger pointing and the blame game and the emotions to think about what could be a sustainable long-term solution to Gaza. How do we move beyond this? How do we provide security for Israel and some measure of stability for the Palestinians? And I'm going to be chatting to Jason, who has some excellent ideas about a possible framework for restoring stability to that beleaguered territory. 
So Jason, to kick us off, we both have friends. We both know people on both sides, Palestinians and Israelis. How do you see the situation now? What are you hearing from your friends right now? Well, Alex, when I first heard about the attacks, I reached out to my two closest American-Israeli friends, both of whom I'd lived with in Jerusalem at different times. And of course, they were sad and terrified. And one thing that they kept coming back to is, how could this happen? How is it that thousands of Gazans, many of them quite young, even if they could break into Israel, were willing to go door by door and shoot civilians and to mutilate people and kill babies. And the reason that this operation was possible is the depth of collective hatred in Gaza towards Israelis and Jews. And you have to deal with that because in the words of the famous refusenik, Natan Sharansky, it's a pogrom. This was a 21st century pogrom. And pogroms are possible only in the context of tremendous hate and dehumanization and lies, like the ones that the czarists had put out about Jews in the 1880s. I think another interesting conversation I've been having with not only Israeli-American friends, but Syrian friends and colleagues of mine who work on Libya, is the question of how instantly the discourse has become absurd. People are busy talking about settler colonialism. You know, this is a product and, you know, people have to have the right to stand up to settler colonialism. And you're like, no, that's crazy. 18-year-old girls at a music festival were killed with their legs chopped off. This has nothing to do with settler colonialism. Give me a break. And then these marches that you're seeing in London and protests on the tubes, I get lots of phone calls from concerned British Jewish friends, you know, people I knew at Oxford, people I know in the foreign office. This scares them. It terrifies them. It's like, as soon as this tragedy happened, they're talking about freeing Palestine? Oh my God, I guess that means they just want to kill all the Jews. So it's terrifying for people who feel, oh my God, the people who are around me actually don't want people who look and sound like me to get to live normal lives. And obviously Palestinians interpret this through another lens. But I think, unfortunately, my initial takeaway is a lot of people don't grasp how free Palestine slogans come across to Israelis and diaspora Jews at this moment. It sounds like genocidal anti-Semitism. We who have been working in this field or who've been living in the region see a slow-moving cataclysm where the Israelis overreact, they cause Palestinian suffering, it causes an outrage in the global south and in the Muslim diaspora. Then this leads to anti-Semitism and there'll be more attacks on Israel or, God forbid, attacks on diaspora Jews who aren't really involved in this conflict abroad. And then that causes more overreaction and more hatred and the ability to have these sides work together and live together seems all the more distant. And I kind of had that sense. And every day I feel for the most part 
that this slow-moving train wreck where it just gets worse and worse and worse is more inevitable and the crash is going to be all the more destructive. So I, I don't know if that means I'm heartbroken on both sides or I just kind of, I can't take it, Alex. I'm heartbroken on both sides. You and I have both lived and worked in that part of the world quite extensively. So this does touch us. This feels very different to me. This is not just another outbreak in the cycle of violence between Israelis and Palestinians. This is a defining moment. And why the UN Secretary General got criticized by Israelis is because there was an implicit but in the way he framed it. But what's happening took part in a wider context. And for Israelis, I do understand why this is not the time for false moral equivalence. This is a but me no buts moment. What Hamas did is utterly beyond the pale, and it served no legitimate Palestinian cause whatsoever. There was nothing that would be achieved that was positive by what Hamas did. And I believe that what you described as this slow-moving cataclysm where all the actors in this tragedy play out their predestined parts, the Israelis are, of course, bound to react to it. And yet they are coming into a situation, Gaza, where it's almost impossible to try and defeat Hamas without there being civilian casualties. This is going to turn the Israelis in the eyes of many into being the bad guys. Then there's going to be, and you are occupiers and you're building settlements. And the Jews, once again, are going to be the victims and the bad guys at the same time. Although, unfortunately, it has to be said, the Israelis aren't helping their case by going in so hard on Gaza. Our roving correspondent, David Patrakarakos, is in Israel right now. And he was one of the journalists who went to view the clips that the Israeli Defense Forces decided to show journalists to counter a narrative that is spreading in some parts of the social media that either these attacks didn't happen or some elements of it were made up. And I'm going to quote from some of what David has written about what he saw. He said, this is the gamification of terror. The fact that the Hamas terrorists wore GoPro cameras and posed and you could see the barrel of their guns just in front of them. And he said, this is something far more ancient and atavistic than just another round in an age-old conflict. It stems from a desire to kill Jews wherever they are. And against that, there can be no retreat whatsoever. So I understand why for Israelis, this is not the moment for the word but to be there implicitly when people talk about it. And I have to say, as someone who has long, long empathized with the Palestinians, I spent part of my student time living on the West Bank. I have friends in Gaza. I am in touch with a friend in Gaza who has been communicating with me every day about what he's experiencing. And 
what the Gazans are experiencing right now is indeed horrific. But anybody out there protesting on the streets of London or Berlin or elsewhere who fails to mention the Hamas attacks is in the end justifying what they did. And I really want that to be put out there. So it's a diplomatic minefield. The Israeli response or over-response or overreaction is as tragic as it is predictable. Yeah. Netanyahu has these right-wing settlers in his cabinet from Ben Gavir to Smotrich. These guys not only have bloodlust, but they're transferists. They think somehow by creating Palestinian human suffering, they can either chase them out, force them into Sinai, or prove a point about the asymmetry of Israeli power. And it's disgusting. And you can support Israel without accepting the absolute sheer pointlessness of carpet bombing and random denying of the essentials of life. I want to interject here and say it could be so much worse. I don't tend to praise State Department, as listeners to this show will hear frequently. But I think that Blinken and Biden and Jake Sullivan have done something genius. The Israelis could have gone full-on psycho, but the ground invasion was really delayed for a long time in the beginning. A lot of diplomacy has happened. The discourse, both in America and abroad, I don't think has given credit enough for the fact that although in the early days, America had to say, we stand with Israel and our friends have been attacked and we've got their back and now isn't the time to question them. Behind the scenes, the Americans have been playing a restraining role on Netanyahu and his coterie of nutcases. And that makes me proud as an American. Well, I partly agree on the US role I do think they are the only ones with leverage on Israel. And I've absolutely no doubt that while they're giving a lot of public support to Israel, behind the scenes, they are doing what they can to try and encourage the Israelis to think through their strategy and to, and to make sure that humanitarian aid gets through to the Palestinians in Gaza. But I also feel the US risks being isolated for example, at the UN, where it has repeatedly blocked UN Security Council and General Assembly resolutions that innocently look like they're calling for a ceasefire, and how could anybody be against that, but actually don't mention Hamas's attacks or Israel's right to self-defense. And that's another problem with the diplomatic quagmire that we're in, which is there's absolutely no chance of concerted UN action on this because the US will protect Israel, the Arab states will be pushing for language on the Palestinians, and countries like Russia will be putting poison pill language into any resolution to try and isolate the Americans even more. The other thing I've seen is people saying, why doesn't Egypt open their borders and just let all the Gazans come and live in the Sinai or elsewhere? And of course, you and I both know there is a history here. The Palestinians who live in Gaza were driven out of their homes in 1948. And they, there is a trauma on the Palestinian side. And they fear that if they leave, they will never be allowed back again. 
Well, we're talking about the discourse aspect here. This conflict, maybe more than anything I've ever experienced, certainly even more than the Russia-Ukraine war, I feel is a thing that can break the internet. It can break friendships. It can push people into their filter bubbles. People who don't have much knowledge still are extremely passionate about this topic. It's nearly impossible to convince anyone of who's right, who's wrong, what should be done. And therefore, it's tailor-made to cause us versus them politics and filter bubbles. And that's really, really worrying because the global enduring disorder is about suboptimal policymaking and suboptimal choices because you can't compromise with your opponents. And if everyone is busy finger pointing and blame gaming online, it's nearly impossible for our policymakers to make any kind of rational compromises. And it's difficult for Jews to speak to their Arab friends from three or four weeks ago because they're afraid that they're going to say something that offends people. I have had conversations with colleagues where the colleague says something like, I want to destroy the Muslim Brotherhood completely, but Israel is so sophisticated technologically, there's no way that the attacks could have happened if the Israelis didn't know about it. They could have just closed the border wall or they would have seen them from their censors. So Netanyahu let the attackers in so that they would kill people and he would have the pretext to be able to not just kill Hamas in Gaza, but work with Sunni Gulf states like the Emirates and the Saudis to kill the Brotherhood throughout the region. And then when you're confronted with your colleague who says this, it's very challenging for me because he's a smart guy to be like, well... I don't really think that that's the case because you're saying that Netanyahu let his own people be killed and that the Israelis are complicit. That's like 9-11 denialism, saying that the Americans knew that there would be the 9-11, but they allowed it to happen so we could invade Iraq. You know what I mean? So that's the kind of thing that's happening to me on a daily basis that I really struggle with. So- There are just all these awkward conversations, and I think that's what you're hitting at, that you say one thing, and it's a minefield, and you get either conspiracy theories or people taking huge issue with you. And I frequently, because I'm a kind of sensitive person, I really don't like offending people. I'm afraid, oh, they're going to cancel me, or they're not going to want to be friends because I have a different view. And I find those conversations, maybe because I'm not a diplomat by training, Alex, I find those conversations really, really fraught and very emotionally taxing. I couldn't agree more. And I was a diplomat and I've been uh, struggling to find the right words and been subject to attack in both directions, no matter what I've tried to say, because I actually empathize with what the Israelis have faced And yet I feel incredibly sorry for the Palestinians and the Gazans and my friend in the south of Gaza cut off from food and fuel and water and suffering this massive bombing. The other issue that is playing into this and making it an even more toxic stew is the amount of misinformation that is playing into this, which is also being weaponized. So we had the back and forth about who was responsible for the strike on the hospital and people believe what they want to believe. Then there was this 
absolutely awful debate to my mind about whether babies were really beheaded or not. Or perhaps they were killed some other way. Maybe they weren't beheaded. We go down these rabbit holes and the most recent one was the elderly lady who was one of the two most recent hostages released. And she was interviewed about her experiences and she said it was absolute hell and she described how she was captured. And then she also said that she was treated well while she was held in captivity. She was given food and medicine. And I was watching this debate play out on social media and it was absolutely fascinating to me because a lot of people were latching on to the fact that she was well treated to sort of bolster the case that Hamas aren't as bad as they'd been portrayed. <laughs> but she should never have been kidnapped in the first place. And her husband is still being detained. You know what all this misinformation and, and taking things out of context online reminds me of, Alex? It's that famous Churchill quote, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. And <laughs> what I take him to mean there is... If you talk to people, they can say the darndest things by pulling something out of context and being like, you won't believe it, but, you know, they killed the people in the hospital on purpose or they did the this. And they then don't explain the context or where it's come from. I know that I probably am an elitist looked at from a neutral point of view. But then I look online when people are saying, you know, Netanyahu made the massacres on purpose. Or then my Israeli friends are saying they should blow up all of Gaza. And you're like, no, why would they blow up all of Gaza? That's the stupidest thing ever. I do hold an elitist position, which is that Joe Blow's emotions should not influence much of our policymaking. I really have a lot of pity for Antonio Gutierrez, because it's not just that he can't say anything without angering someone. And there's no discussion of the content of the idea. And what I'm afraid of is that this is a symptom of the enduring disorder. The enduring disorder is a field where you could spend 20 years learning Arabic and Hebrew, studying medieval Islamic theology, the refugee and asylum law, humanitarian this, and you can't make policy because people are busy shouting and finger pointing and your job when you're one of these institutions is to make sure that you don't say anything that pisses off people. And frankly, it terrifies me. Maybe this is the reason why I'm not as active on social media. And I have a lot of empathy for you because I'm scared of sticking my head above the parapet because my friends even attack me from the opposite sides and I don't stick my head above the parapet. So it's a really difficult time for the people in the region. And I kind of like pity myself, if this makes sense. It's a weird self-pitying thing. It's like, oh God, I should have been a doctor. Because when you do a surgery, people's family come and they're like, thank you. Little Jimmy can see now. We love you. And then I do my thing. I write an article and my Republican uncle is like, how dare you? And then I have some Arab friends and they're like, you're a neo-colonialist. And it's like, oh God. I really just, I got into the wrong field, Alex. And every day I'm like, what is it even doing to do this as a profession? Absolutely. This is such a difficult issue. And watching the debate play out on social media, it's probably the worst forum possible because no matter what you say, no matter how carefully you express it, 
emotions are running so high that motives are maligned, comments are taken out of context, as I believe the UN Secretary General's were. And we need cooler heads to prevail here. And when I wake up with that feeling that I should have been a doctor and like, what has this actually accomplished my being a Middle Eastern expert if the world is in such a tragic place and none of us were able to avoid this disaster coming, I spent a lot of time thinking about the hostages. As horrific as it is for your loved one to have been brutally murdered on October 7th, I cannot imagine what it's like to be in the position of waiting weeks with them kidnapped or even years as happened with Gilad Shalit. I feel we in the international community, if we're worth the name of being an international community, have to do whatever we can to incentivize the release of the hostages. Whether this is doing a prisoner exchange, supporting future development aid, maybe even letting some Gazan leaders who don't have blood on their hands escape to Doha, we simply have to get the hostages out. But I have a wrinkle that we're going to talk about in my plan for how to have post-war governance for Gaza, which is that this is frequently discussed as a moral and humanitarian imperative, but people forget the strategic imperative. You can't negotiate on medium or long-term solutions when Hamas is holding the sword of Damocles over everyone's head, saying, we're going to behead the hostages if you don't do what we want. This is a situation that we cannot be in because we can't get a reasonable solution if there is a maniac threatening to behead someone's daughter. We're going to take a short break now, but after, we'll discuss my plan for post-war governance of Gaza that I really hope could be used to help bring the conflict to an end. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. 
I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Jason, let's try and draw back a little bit from this very difficult, emotive moment. You have some ideas about what might be a, I don't know if it's a long-term solution, but it's kind of a medium-term solution. Because one of the things that we keep coming back to is what's Israel's plan? I mean, even if they flatten Gaza and turn it into Grozny, that doesn't mean the issue goes away. What is the way to help the Israelis feel secure again? And what is the way to give the Palestinians a viable territory and livelihood and some kind of breathing space to reinvigorate discussion of a long-term solution for Israelis and Palestinians? So tell us about your idea, Jason. And thank you for coming up with ideas. (laughs) Thanks, Alex. That was a great way of framing it. I'm not only trying to answer the questions you asked, but... I'm trying to say, how can we prevent this cataclysm and tragedy on both sides from emitting a huge amount of disorder and contagion into the world where the Iranian Russians are just licking their chops and are able to thwart and stymie any attempt at order, funding terrorists here and there, and then promoting chaos for chaos's sake. And my idea, briefly, briefly put, is as follows. People are missing the medium term. There is a focus on long term and super short term. So if you listen to the discourse on social media and online, it's blame game and super short term, like let's get the trucks into Gaza and let's get the hostages out. And I want humanitarian supplies in Gaza and I want the hostages out. But if all we're working on is that, that doesn't solve the conflict. And then if we do only the long term, like, well, we need a two-state solution and we need to swap these territories and we need, you know, right of return and historic justice. Well, we can't, you can't solve that while the war is going on. So what I would like to do, and this is interestingly building on ideas that I had in 2005-06 where I was living in Jerusalem and there was the heat Natkut, the withdrawal. Just to clarify, you mean the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza, right? Yeah. Then I was also in southern Lebanon and northern Israel for the... 2006 Israeli Hezbollah war, which has certain parallels that I think all of that is relevant. And an idea I've been pushing since then is a medium term solution that I think can be negotiated while the conflict is going on, mostly negotiated by Anglo-American diplomacy, convening our regional allies, and then presented to the Israelis and Palestinians with lots of carrots for compliance and sticks for opposing the plan. What I would like to do is have a Qatari, Emirati, Saudi, Egyptian condominium to administer post-war Gaza's foreign affairs, borders, healthcare, infrastructure, education for some mandatory period. Let's call it more than five, less than 10 years. Rebuilding, dehamasification, preparations for elections can happen during this time. I'm not the only one saying this broad concept. I have a tiny novelty, which no one really has been saying since 2006, which is that Israeli unilateralism doesn't work because then they get blamed by Hamas when they have to patrol the borders. And other people say, well, great, get the Egyptians and Saudis or Emiratis 
to administer Gaza. The problem is that they're seen as quite allied with the anti-Muslim Brotherhood forces or allied with America. So my novelty is to have the Qataris involved. The Qataris allow the Hamas political wing to live in Doha. The Qataris have worked with and funded the Muslim Brotherhood throughout the region. If we can have the Qataris be involved, they can showcase the legitimacy of this idea to a Sunni Islamist public, and they can try to pivot Islamism away from Hamas while being vested in keeping Palestinians well-fed and prosperous and Israelis secure. So two immediate thoughts occur to me, both big questions. One is, is there sufficient trust between the Qataris, Emiratis, Saudis and Egyptians to work together to do this? Because there have been historically tensions between them. Then the second question is, can enough trust be established between the Israelis and this foursome, this quartet, for the Israelis to feel they can trust their security. How do we reassure the Israelis that this is an acceptable solution? Those are two great questions. And sadly, the answer to both of them is, well, not really. However, trend lines have been in a positive direction. So during the Trump and Johnson administrations, there was a very strong anti-cuttery wing to Anglo-American foreign policy. And this enabled the Saudi, Emirati, Kuwaiti blockade of Qatar. Qatar Why was was there that hostility to the Qataris? I'll explain. So it is correct to say that in the early post-Arab spring years, particularly 2011 to say 2015, the Qataris worked with the Muslim Brotherhood. They supported Morsi in Egypt. They funded him. They worked with a range of Libyan militias and the raison d'etre of Emirati and Saudi policy in the region is to oppose the Muslim Brotherhood and to drive Islamic politics in a quietist direction. So they said, these horrible cutteries, they're undoing everything that we're about. So they blockaded them. And Trump, particularly through Jared Kushner, has always been a supporter of the Emirati. So it was the right moment for them. They had support in the White House. But he did it in a very comically bad way so that his secretary of state at the time, Rex Tillerson, he went to Qatar and worked with the Qataris behind Trump and Kushner's back. So he made the Qatari issue into a partisan issue in American politics. Biden has since healed this issue. And I'm very, again, it's another thing that I don't think he gets enough credit for. We are working more now with all of them. And the Qataris are back with their GCC, that's the Gulf Cooperation Council partners. Is there really enough trust to make the Qataris, Emiratis, and Saudis and Egyptians agree to this solution? At present, the answer is no. That's why I want Anglo-American mediation, where we threaten sanctioning the fuck out of the Qataris. You hosted Ismail Haniya, the political wing of Hamas. You, mostly under the emir's father... But they did this. They funded Sunni Islamists who perpetrated terror attacks. And guess what? If you want to still have our base there that they have in Qatar, we have an important U.S. Army base there. If you want to do all those things, we're going to sanction you and we're not going to work with you. What you have to do is get rid of the Hamas. No more funding of this. No more. Like they, 
supported the more radically jihadi wings in Syria, like Tahrir Sham and maybe even some ISIS precursors. But I feel that the new, the younger, uh, present emir, the post-2013 emir, he's been trying to pivot away from this for a long time. So we don't punish him for what he did in the past. We say, great, you work with us. You kick the Hamas guys out. Try to present a new kind of Sunni Islamism, which is quietist. And we're going to help you hear the rift with the Emirati, Saudis, and Egyptians. On the Emirati, Saudi, and Egyptian side, it's, guys, Qatar is this one tiny peninsula. They don't even have 500,000 citizens. You've just got to get over it. We've got to work with them so that we're on the same page so that this Emirati, Qatari Cold War doesn't continue. The more it continues, it allows the Iranians to menace the region and undermine various things. And the one thing that all these powers want, including the Israelis, is the Iranian influence in the region to be curtailed. I would assert it's because of the Emirati Qatari Cold War since the Arab Spring that the Iranians have grown in power. They fund Hezbollah. They won in Syria. You know, Assad is essentially their puppet. They have their Shia militias in Iraq. They use Bahraini civil society activists against the Bahraini state. The Iranians might nuclearize. If we can explain to them, we're going to work with you on getting this Iranian influence out of the region. I think they might just work together. And they both want the glory of solving the Palestinian issue. If you can go to your populace and say, look, the Israelis were bombing the shit out of it. America wasn't able to do anything. But I, the emir of Abu Dhabi, worked with this guy and this guy we had a conference in Doha. We brought peace to the Palestinians. I think that's a huge motivating factor. Okay. I wish something like that could happen. But why would they want to take on the hot potato that is Gaza? I mean, they all say they care about the Palestinians. But... If they were to try and take on Gaza, I can imagine the Israelis saying, see, now look what we've had to deal with. I mean, that's not, of course, to say there isn't a mass of Palestinians who just want peace, stability, health, education, and would welcome being free of their Hamas overlords. So they may find there is receptive terrain, but there will still, unless the Israelis eliminate every Hamas operative, which I think is a really hard challenge, will Hamas end up saying, now we're just being ruled by a different set of overlords? And will it turn into a messy intra-Arab situation? And far from the Saudis or the Gulfies being able to say, see, we are now benevolently supporting the Palestinians, there will now be a narrative that we've just exchanged one set of oppressors for another. So would they really want to take this hot potato on? Those are all the right concerns. But Alex, sometimes too much realism would make it impossible to solve any conflict. And a realist looks at my proposals and says, never going to happen, never going to work. 
But something's got to happen. Something. What we I'm need trying to, to say is we need yeah. to think beyond the immediately doable to what has to happen. And there are many reasons why this can't happen, so to speak. But if America and Britain, particularly working with their EU allies, had sanctions for not doing it and lots of carrots and we work with you against the Iranians and we train you in this and we do whatever, I think that we've seen a process over the last 15 years, which is the emergence of the Qataris, Emiratis and Saudis from being minor players on the world stage to being true medium powers and from being regional players to being global players. One of the things that we're going to do is say, okay, you want to spend a billion dollars in Gaza, and the Qataris have already done that. You want to have lobbying efforts in Washington and host the World Cup and do the whatever. Great. You've got to take some responsibility. You're a medium power now, buddy. And I think whether it's for narcissism or for maturity, they want that. And there is a moment whereby the Qataris say, yes, we're the wealthiest country on earth in per capita GDP and what's called PPP, purchasing power parity. And we are ready to step into global burden. And MBS says, I've changed Saudi Arabia. I personally got women to drive. I am building a mega city, Neom, which is going to change how climate is done and how urban living happens. I will eventually make peace with the Israelis. I am going to work with my former adversaries and administer Gaza and bring peace to the Palestinians and get the Israelis to admit Palestinian sovereignty in exchange for us making sure that there are no dual-use items going into Gaza and taking care of funding Gazan schools and giving scholarships for Gazans to study abroad. I think that there is an opportunity here. Am I naive in thinking it's likely to happen? No, of course not, Alex. But I want to ask you a question because you're the doer between the two of us. And, and I really respect not only that you've done, but that you have a view of we need to not let cynicism creep in. And I'm trying to fight my own cynicism because I wake up in the morning and I'm like, oh my God, I've wasted my whole life. I should have been a surgeon. I could have helped people see or cured their cancer. Instead, look at the mess that's in the world there. So what I want to ask you is, when in your history of being a diplomat, were you faced with a situation when it was like, oh my God, we can never get this implemented. We'll never be able to get these sides to do it, but we just have to. We just have to try to work towards this. And then it happened. Tell us about that. Well, I don't think this is on the same scale. It's not on the same historical scale. It's not on the same level of atavistic hatred of the other. It does involve a bit of religion, so that brings into it. But you and I interviewed Jonathan Powell about the Northern Ireland peace process. And that required faith and determination and persistence and outside actors to sponsor the process and keep it on the rails when during the process there were still a couple of terrorist attacks that took place and we had to keep the process going. Then there were incredibly difficult issues about victims, justice. Were you going to offer amnesties for people who had committed crimes or murdered people? 
this is still playing out in the British and Irish systems today. These issues haven't gone away, but the Good Friday Agreement was an astonishing achievement on a conflict that the immediate actors on the field felt really passionately about. What was there, however, was partners for peace on either side. The Irish government and the British government were determined to make it work, and there were activists in Northern Ireland who were willing to say, we have to stop the bloodletting and the hatred and the killing. And that is, unfortunately, this is sort of what is the absolute tragedy about this, is what Hamas has unleashed is all the horror again and the hatred and the bloodletting. And now you see it in this awful imagery that is bombarding us every day on our news screens, which makes it much harder. Does it empower the hardliners or does it discredit them? Right now, it appears to be empowering some of the hardliners. There are people, certainly in Israel, who are saying, and it's to their credit that even amongst their pain and grief, there are still Israeli voices saying just bombing the hell out of Gaza isn't the solution. And we may need to reflect ourselves and Netanyahu is some of his policies divided us and distracted us. So Israel, astonishingly, is still capable of some reflection. But right now, there is also a rallying behind their government of national unity. The difference in Northern Ireland is it had reached a visible stalemate. And Sinn Féin realised they were not going to achieve what they wanted through military means. And that provided the opening. Hamas isn't there yet. And you have malign actors like Iran who don't want them to get there. But yes, it has happened in history. Another example I have is the Colombia peace process, which is staggering along, limping along. But it did involve reaching a peace deal with narco-terrorists. That is very difficult again, because what has been really difficult is the accountability for past crimes. That is something that is very difficult. And the toxic influence in there are the drug traffickers. So they're the sort of Iran in that scenario. But yes, you've challenged me and there are examples. I think that those are really useful examples because they point out that things were done that previously had been said couldn't be done. But the contrast with the Israel-Palestine issue is very daunting because, yes, there's a peace camp in Israel, and yes, people want to get rid of Netanyahu because he was incompetent and divisive and whatever, and yes, most Palestinians oppose Hamas. But the sheer complexity of the Israel-Palestine issue, the sheer depth of the hatred, the sheer number of outside actors who want to pile in is so much greater. Of course, we had the Irish in Boston giving donations to Sinn Féin. But it's not like the whole world from Santiago, Chile to Novgorod in Russia exactly. was busy supporting either Ulster Unionist exactly. or uh, provisional Sinn Féin. Whereas the thing that is annoying as someone who spent my life doing this conflict, everyone has an opinion. Everyone knows something, which I think is going to make it really, really hard because it's not just the Iranians and Russians weighing in. It's absolutely everyone throwing their diplomatic weight in 97 directions, which is why I want an Anglo-American mediating role. And I don't want to expand it to like, oh, the EU and the whatever, because it's just going to get too complicated. 
I find it fascinating that you're coming back to the idea of this needing to be an Anglo-American-led initiative because you and I, in so many episodes of this podcast, lament the state of politics in each of our countries. And yet, and I offer this out to my listeners as someone who is so often critical of the British, I still believe in the UK and its ability to be a force for good on the world. And I definitely do about the US. And they can make a difference. And on something like this, I think they will work together very well and very effectively. There are good connections across the region. The UK has wonderful connections across the Middle East, not least because half of the leaders across the Middle East have all gone to Sandhurst or Oxford. So there are these historical connections. The one caveat I would offer, however, about the British and the American role is the widespread perception that they are very much in Israel's camp and not, at least in public, sufficiently vocal about the situation of the Palestinians. And that may be a hindrance to their mediating role. Many people will balk at the involvement of the Qataris in governing or administering post-war Gaza out of the idea that, hey, Aren't they partially responsible for this problem? They have been Hamas's piggy bank. They've been Hamas's conduit to the international financial system. Why would we reward them with any role in post-war Gaza? I would argue they've been moderating Hamas during that period and making sure that Hamas isn't entirely dependent on just the Iranians. But the most compelling reason to work with the Qataris is show me the hostages, baby. What we need now is to get these hostages released. And only one country has been able to mediate between America and Israel and the West and Hamas, and that's Qatar. The Saudis can't do it. We can't talk with Hezbollah. We can't talk with Iran. Only the Qataris can deliver the hostages. And we discussed on our previous bonus episode, my view, which is that the military part of this conflict is already over and has been won by Hamas. And we need to acknowledge that. And we need to focus on getting these hostages so they don't get killed and tortured because that's not what I accept. So when we hear the Israeli right saying, we need to win the war and not care about the hostages, I think that that's wrong. We can work with the Qataris, we can get the hostages, and it's actually in our benefit to incentivize the Qataris to have a stake in a post-war Gaza so this type of extremism and armed militia movements cannot come back. I'm going to have one last question for you, which is, do you think Arab-Israeli relations can survive this? I mean, one of the things that has been much commented on has been the timing of this attack, just as even Saudi Arabia and Israel look like they might be willing to normalize relationships. And I'm sure that part of this is an attempt to derail the Abraham Accords. 100%. And the prospect of a Saudi Israel reconciliation. And the more pictures we get of the sort of tragic situation of Gazans right now, the harder it's going to be. It's exactly right. And 
There are reports, Alex, that there was a Hamas delegation in Moscow meeting with Lavrov a few months ago. Why this wasn't acted on by U.S. intelligence? Allahu alam. That means God knows. Who knows, right? Clearly, there was a delegation of Islamic Jihad meeting with the Iranians in Beirut in September. Like that was known, but the importance of it wasn't picked up. So yes, the timing is not only to derail the Israel-Saudi peace deal, but to prevent Biden from getting credit from that because all the disorderers would love to discredit Biden because he's an orderer and make sure that Trump gets in. I think that the Russians probably, whether they're behind it or not, they're going to make sure that there can't be a solution because this allows everyone to be focused on Israel-Palestine rather than winning in Ukraine and to have arms supplies diverted to Israel. You know what I mean? It really helps them in Ukraine. But essentially to wrap up, we're both having heartbreak for both sides. I really care about the humanitarian short term. I do not want bombings of Gaza. And I do not think that it's okay to essentially have a siege where people die of famines. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's famine because the generators don't work or they don't get medicines. We just can't have it because even if it's the Israelis who will do it, people are going to blame America and Britain. Do you know what I mean? You and I are going to be on some trip and some guy is going to be like, you Americans bombed Gaza and let the whatever happen. I can't have that happen. But we can't only do with the short term because the root causes, man, these root causes have been through our whole lives of just cycles of violence and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. When is it going to get so worse that we can finally make it better? And I'd like to believe this might be it. This is something which is so unthinkable that Biden and Blinken and Sunak and Cleverly And we can work with Macron. And I like the Japanese because they're truly perceived as neutral. So we can have them in in a certain way. Are just going to smash heads together and say, we're not letting you guys destroy the whole world over a few square kilometers of territory. Because it's like two square feet is essentially what they're fighting over. The Qataris will force them to give a few billion dollars and like give a few scholarships to some Gazans. And then the Israelis were like, We're not giving you these bombs if you just drop them on civilians. Do you know what I mean? Like, we have the ability. Congress may not do it, but we have the ability to, like, use our leverage. So, Alex, you've accused me frequently, personally, and otherwise of always having the last word. So I'm going to demand that you have the last word. And I'm going to ask you, as a diplomat who's worked on the Middle East peace process for Her Majesty's government, how do you see... American and British leverage over the players. I see it conceptually, but you may see it practically. Tell us what's the leverage that we have over the Israelis, Palestinians, and Gulf Arabs to try to bring about some kind of magic bullet solution. Jason, thank you for asking me that question. Thank you for offering me a chance to have the last word. There is not enough time left in this episode to delve into that. So actually, I'm going to flag up that I'm going to be interviewing Tom Fletcher, the former British ambassador to Lebanon, currently principal of Hartford College, Oxford. He's worked in the National Security Council. He's worked for several British prime ministers. He's a real expert on the Middle East. And I think he will help us think about 
how do we advance these kind of solutions? And I'm also going to be asking him to explore a little bit more the Hezbollah, Lebanon, Iran angles. Where does this go next? So thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you want to hear the next one with Tom Fletcher, please tap follow wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on at Disorder Show on the network formerly known as Twitter. And if you're interested in some of the things we've talked about today, I think you would enjoy my Boston Globe piece in the ideas section. Qatar is the key to peace in post-war Gaza. We're putting a link to that in the show notes. And we're also going to have some other resources about different formulas for trying to resolve this conflict. If you're heartbroken on both sides, we're hoping you can have as orderly a week as possible. And I look forward to commiserating with you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.